There's a fabricated story about the life of Jesus. He lived, died, and returned to heaven. And an angel came to him and said, What did you do? He answered, Well, I lived a perfect life on earth. I obeyed everything that that the Father told me to do. I did it up to the very last moment. As the perfect lamb, I sacrificed my life on the cross so that men's sins could be atoned for, satisfying my Father's wrath. I was buried, raised, and ascended to be here. I have charged 11 men to carry out the message of salvation through my name through, throughout the world in such a way that it will continue to reproduce itself throughout all generations until I finally come back and the work is finished. The angel looked at him with incredulity and said, What if your plans fail? Jesus said, I have no other plan. What is that plan? That plan is evangelism. And do you know what will destroy that plan more than anything else in your own hearts and in your own lives? It's called the fear of man. You see, Satan knows God's plan. Satan also knows that if he can get us to fear, if he can get us to fear man, if he can get us to fear our society, he knows that he can throw a wrench in that plan. In a few weeks, you're going to have an opportunity to uh, take part in what's called your missions conference. And we're going to have some of you students down at, uh, at our church as well, and we're looking for that opportunity. But what a great opportunity. But as I know, many of you, most of you, if not all of you, are going to have the opportunity to share the gospel. And if you're like me, you're probably a little intimidated. Some of you may be outright scared to death. Relax. Take great joy in that. I mean, you're in good company because, in a sense, fear is a normal response when it comes to evangelism, but fear is not the right response that we are to have. Why? Fear will shut you down, clam you up, cause you to compromise your behavior, and lead you to complacency. Fear will destroy or will steal your joy, ruin your testimony, and if it doesn't do that, it will cause you to be dull and unusable to the master's service. And as I know, nobody in here wants that to take place. You want to be bold. You want to be used by God wherever you're going in your churches. And not only that, but in your own personal lives as you're sharing your faith with your friends and those who don't know the Lord. First Peter is a book written to the people just like us. He writes to Jewish Christians scattered all over Asia Minor. And I don't have time to give you the historical details of what was taking place in this book. But the people he is writing to were getting persecuted for their faith. They knew what it was to fear men. And Roman persecution of Christians was spreading, basically because of the great fire of Rome in the 60s AD. They were ridiculed, mocked, scoffed at, and the brunt of jokes. And what I believe is that these people began to step back from their society and began to step back from who they were and began to step back from being aggressive in evangelism because they feared their society and they feared the communities that they were living in. And in this first letter, he gives a number of weapons to combat their hostile environment. I mean, they lived in a radically hostile environment. Probably a lot more hostile than what you are experienced to. Probably very close to what I experienced on the UCLA campus. 10% homosexuals on campus. Absolutely people who hate the Bible and will do everything that they can to shut it down and to shut up Christians on the campus. Very hostile environment. So I know what it's like to fear. This morning, I want to share two of those weapons. The first, I'll briefly mention, and the second, 
I'll, I'll develop a little bit more. The first weapon I want to look at, and turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 2.9. I'm just going to touch on this one real quick. What's, what's a weapon that will allow us and help us in evangelism? By remembering who we are. Look at 1 Peter 2.9. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Don't forget the fact, the historical context of what was taking place here in the context of the church and how they were ridiculed and mocked in this hostile environment. And Peter comes to him and says, Hey, remember who you are. As I was thinking about this, by the way, I did these messages in college life just even a few weeks ago. And as I was thinking about this whole issue of remembering who you are, I remembered a little movie that I saw with my daughter. When you become a father, you begin to start using more and more illustrations with kids. How many of you guys saw the movie The Lion King? A lot of you guys did. And it was really intriguing when I was thinking about this, because when you think about the story, you have young Simba, little lion. He's being groomed and brought up and trained to be king. And what happens is his father dies and, and, and his uncle blames him for the death. And so out of fear he runs and he, and he runs from his past and he hides from everyone. And he goes off and what happens to the kingdom? The kingdom falls apart, right? And then this, his past catches up with him and he's distressed and discouraged about what was taking place and what was going on back home when his little friend Nina came or Nyla came and told him what was going on back home with the kingdom. And then he's all distressed and discouraged and he goes out in the meadow and he looks up in the sky and he says, his father's dead at this time, and he he says, where are you? You promised you'd always be there for me. Then all these big clouds come up, if you remember the story and everything, and you hear this big voice, you know, the Darth Vader voice. Simba, you have forgotten me. And Simba's like, no, no, Mufasa, or no, Dad, I haven't forgotten you. Simba, you have forgotten who you are, therefore you have forgotten me. You know, the big, deep Darth Vader voice. And he says, no, no, I haven't. He says, you are my son. You are the one true king. You must take your place in the circle of life. In other words, he was saying, Simba, remember who you are. You are the king. And you must take your place in the kingdom and restore it and reestablish it. And I was thinking about this. I'm like, isn't that just like us? We start fearing our society and we start fearing who we are as Christians and we start to retreat and we run from dealing with the fears of our life and the fears of society as Simba did. And we forget who we are. And Peter has to tell the people in 1 Peter, hey, remember who you are. You are a chosen race. You are specifically chosen and elect to be my special race here on earth. Not only that, but you are a royal priesthood. What was a priest? A priest was someone who represented man to God and God to man. And he says, you are a royal priesthood. You represent me. You are a holy nation. Holy means separate. You've been taken out of this world and placed into the very church of God as a separated people. And then he says, you are a people for my own possession." You have been redeemed by my Son. Why? Why are we a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession? He says it in verse 9. And He gives them 
This weapon, he says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Therefore, in my own words, remember who you are in society. We don't retreat. We don't run from fear. But we remember who we are, that we are God's special chosen ambassadors here on this earth, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Peter gives them that weapon to combat that. Now we see another weapon to combat this hostile environment that we live in. The second weapon is fear not man, but fear God. And here's the weapon that I want to develop a little bit more. Turn to 1 Peter 3. First of all, remember who you are. Secondly, fear not man, but fear God. 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 16. Let me read that. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter gives us five, and we'll only get to four this morning, five practical principles of how to overcome fear in order to share your faith. Let me say that again. Peter gives us five, and this will be our, we'll only go through four again. Four, I'll just say, practical principles of how to overcome fear in the order to evangelize. In other words, in order to live out who we are. First principle, verse 13 of 1 Peter 3. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? How can you and I combat this hostile environment in the, in the issue of evangelism, in the issue of sharing our faith? Verse 13, first principle. You must continue to live zealous for good deeds, no matter the prevailing climate. Let me say that again. You must prove zealous or continue to live zealous for good deeds, no matter the prevailing climate. What Peter is doing here, he's he's attacking this thought. Listen up. Here's the thought he's attacking. If we stand out and be so different in the world, we'll be persecuted. I used to think that. And here's what the people that Peter is writing to were thinking. If we stand out and if we're so different in the world, in our lifestyle, in what we do, we'll be persecuted for that. And Peter says, not true. He says, if you become zealous... If you are zealous, if you become zealous for good deeds, who will harm you for that? You know what a zealot is, don't you? A zealot is someone who is passionate about something. I mean, they are absolutely just completely gripped with something. It's one who is intense or very enthusiastic. You talk about a passionate man or a zealous man, a a passionate man for God, a man who burns for God's passion, is a man who's passionate after the things of God. In the days of Jesus, there were zealots. Those were people who were so passionate about the national identity of Israel, they wanted to throw off Roman oppression, they wanted to throw off the Roman uh, kingdom, and they wanted to establish their own kingdom, the Jewish nation. They were zealots. And here in this context, it is one who is literally zealous or passionate about the good, about good deeds, about acts of kindness or jealous, or gentleness, I should say. It's a good that focuses on others. When he talks about good deeds here, it's not just doing general good deeds. It's a, it, it, it's, it's a good that focuses on others. 
especially, or especially when it's in a hostile environment. In fact, Paul even says in Titus 2.14 that we were redeemed for the essence of good deeds. You and I were saved not just to keep us out of hell. You and I were saved for good deeds. And if we put it back in the context here in 1 Peter 3.13, it says that we are to be zealous for good deeds, doing good deeds to others. So if we are living out our Christianity in the sense of doing acts of kindness, focusing on serving the unsaved, who is going to harm us for that? I mean, when we take our eyes off ourselves and start putting it on, on the conditions of society, I mean, you think about divorce, you think about suicide, you think about what's taking place, just the absolute total abandonment to sin within our society. People need the Lord. And people need us as Christians to serve them with kindness and with gentleness and good deeds. You see, I believe Peter is saying here, don't run from unbelievers. Be passionate about serving with deeds of kindness. You see, what he's talking about here is he's talking about laying the ground, the groundwork for uh, evangelism, laying the foundation for evangelism. I have a good illustration of this. I have a friend who's a missionary. He's on furlough now. And he blows me away when it comes to serving the unsaved. He'll move into someone next door. He'll look for ways. I mean, if he sees his neighbor mowing the grass with like a push mower, he'll bring out his lawnmower right there, wouldn't even say anything to the guy, and just start mowing the grass for him. Laying the foundation, laying the, uh, the groundwork that he has the opportunity to share the gospel with this guy. I do that with my neighbors. We, we, live in a, we used to live in a uh, condo complex. And I'd be washing down my driveway, and what I would do is I'd go over to my neighbors, wash down their driveway. So he comes out of their driveway, and he's like, wow, who washed, who washed my driveway? And he looks over, sees my driveway washed, and sees his, like, wow, Rick did that. Laying the groundwork for evangelism. And Peter says, hey, don't worry about being persecuted. If you live zealous, if you prove zealous for good deeds, who's going to harm you for that? Another example is my dad, who's just an absolute reprobate. He stopped talking to me when he knew that I became a Christian and I left the Catholic Church. And so I asked my mom, I said, what do you want me to do around the house? And so my mom set up all these projects. And all summer, I was just doing all these projects around my house because I loved my dad. I wanted him to see the gospel and that it made a difference in my life. At the end of that summer, he started talking to me, absolutely floored me, because he saw me working in the hot sun. He saw me working in the 100-degree weather, putting insulation up in the attic, just dumb little things that I was doing for my parents to break down his hard heart so that I have an opportunity in the future to share the gospel with him. You see, fear is alleviated when you think of others and not yourself. When you get your eyes off yourself and onto others, fear is alleviated. Good illustration of this. We have a guy in seminary. He's in our ministry. He lives in Van Nuys on a second-story uh, apartment complex. And his neighbor, who lives downstairs from him, happens to work real late at night, and he sleeps in in the morning. Well, my friend and, and his wife, his name's Tim, Tim and his wife um, get up real early in the morning. And the guy's kitchen is, is uh, my friend's kitchen is right over the guy's bedroom. And when they were walking on the floor at night, or in the, really early in the morning, they were waking him up, and the guy just said, hey, can you guys kind of keep it down in the morning? And so what my friend and his wife does is they take off their shoes when they're walking in the kitchen really in the morning. When they're putting down a coffee cup on the counter, they don't just set it down real hard. They do it real gently, all for the purpose of having an opportunity to share the gospel with them in the future. You see, when you serve others who revile or who mock you, no one will harm you for that. So we overcome fear and evangelism by living zealous for good deeds, no matter how people treat us. Very, very practical with what Peter says. There's a second principle for overcoming fear and evangelism. 
You must consider it a privilege to suffer. You must consider it a privilege to suffer. Look at verse 14 of 1 Peter. He says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. What a great principle. What a great thing. The exchange for our suffering is God's blessing. It's His favor. You know, chances are, if we prove zealous in service, you still may be persecuted. Know that you may still suffer for being good or for your good behavior. And the grammar here, as as Peter is talking in verse 14, when he says, but, I mean, when he says that there, but even if you should, there is an opportunity that you may be suffering. I mean, it's not totally for certain, but if you do suffer, hey, remember, you're blessed or you're favored or you're fortunate. You see, we think the opposite. We think this. We think we would rather not be blessed and not be persecuted. You know, God, I don't want your blessing if I'm going to be persecuted. See, we think the exact opposite. Peter is saying, hey, if you do suffer, remember, you're blessed. If it were left up to us, forget the blessing, I'd rather rather not be persecuted. But Peter says, you are blessed. You are privileged. Why is suffering so good? Have you ever thought about that? Why are we called to suffer, as First Peter even says. Let me give you a couple reasons why suffering is so good. It is so good for us, you guys, to suffer and to be persecuted. First of all, it keeps you humble. It keeps you humble. So you see, our wicked hearts want to be liked. Our wicked hearts want to be popular. Our wicked hearts want to be in with the in crowd, right? We don't like to be different than other people. And suffering keeps us lowly. It keeps us selfless. It keeps our eyes off ourselves and on to others. So, so suffering keeps us humble. Secondly, suffering keeps our eyes on Christ. Suffering keeps our eyes on Christ. When we get comfortable, our eyes focus on this world. Suffering gets our focus upwards. Our focus upwards. Why else is suffering good? Suffering's good because it brings rewards. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, listen to what he says. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when men men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on, on, on the account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Suffering brings great reward. So if we do suffer, we're blessed because the fact of the matter is it humbles us. It keeps our eyes on Christ. It is good because it brings rewards. Fourthly, it's good because it causes us to fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. Paul said in Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. You know what that means? Paul so much wanted to know his Lord and Savior. Paul so much wanted to know Jesus Christ and to live an experiential life with Him of abundance and blessing that he was willing even to suffer for it. Are you that radical about your Christian life and wanting to know Christ? That you would even say, God, I want to know Christ so much. I just want to know Him. I want to know Him in an intimate, deep way like I've never known Him before. Are you willing to suffer for it? Suffering brings you into fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. Suffering also glorifies God. 1 Peter 6 and 7. 
In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering brings God glory. Do you want to glorify God? Then let Him allow you to suffer. Don't see suffering as something that's bad. See it as something that is good. You see, here's the issue. If you forget suffering or if you forfeit suffering because you blend in with the world or because you fear being persecuted so you aren't bold for Christ, then you forfeit a chance to be humble. You forfeit a chance to keep your eyes on Christ. You forfeit a chance to fellowship in His sufferings. You forfeit a chance to receive God's rewards. And you forfeit a chance for God's glory. So if you run from suffering, if you run from being persecuted, you're running from God working in your life. But when you see suffering as a privilege, you will overcome fear and evangelism. I won't fear suffering. I won't fear persecuted or, or persecution or ridicule or being mocked because I know it is a great privilege to suffer. There's a third principle. A third principle for overcoming fear and evangelism. You must confront the fear of man. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, the first pardon. 1 Peter 3. You must confer the, the, the fear of man. Confront the fear of man. But if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do, as a command, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. No one likes to be persecuted. No one likes to be ridiculed or mocked for how they live or what they say. But sooner or later it will come. Paul told Timothy, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter said in, in 1 Peter 2.20, for you have been called for this purpose. Do you know that? You and I have been called for the purpose of suffering. Man, that, that floors me. That blows me away. Because we think Christianity, oh, I just accept Jesus and everything will be fine and I'll live a happy life ever after and I'll just be this nice little Christian boy or girl for the rest of my life. We've been called for the purpose of suffering. 4.19 of 1 Peter says, Therefore let those also who suffer according to the will of God. And that could even be another principle for us. Understanding and knowing that suffering is by God's will. God wills us to suffer. You see, why is it so stupid for us to fear? Why is it so stupid for us to fear when on the first hand we see that it's a great blessing? On the second hand, we're being called to that purpose. On the third hand, we, it is God's will when we do fear, when we are persecuted. I mean, those are great truths. Those are great joys to our heart. So part of being a Christian is suffering for the gospel's sake. But in suffering, you are not to fear man, nor be shaken or troubled by how or what people do to you. Now, what does it mean to fear man? Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, do not fear their intimidation. Let me tell you what that means. Their intimidation. You know what that means? It means that I care more about what people think of me than what God expects of me. I care more about what that person that I'm sharing the gospel with thinks of me and who oh, are they thinking I'm a Jesus freak? Oh, are they just thinking I'm some weird religious addict or some religious freak? Instead of understanding and knowing that God calls us through Jesus Christ in, in Matthew 28, calls us to make disciples. Instead of putting our minds on the right things of God's Word and what He calls us, we're fearing of what other people think of us. I won't make waves with people because I'm scared of their reaction. 
They won't think I'm cool. That's what it means to fear their intimidation. If I share the gospel, they'll think I'm weird or, or they'll laugh at me. If I live too radically different, people won't think Christianity is fun and they won't become a Christian. I used to think that all the time. I need to really, you know, I need to be just like my friends. And that was just a, a, a compromise in my own heart, just to be like them and live in, and live in sin with them. Because I used to think that if I live too radically different, they think Christianity is not fun and they won't become a Christian. Or I don't want to tell people about sin because they'll be offended. Oh, I just may offend them if I tell them about sin. Tell them about sin. But then give them hope and tell them about the cross. And if they mock you for sin, tell them, hey, that's true. That's what God's Word says. But let me tell you about the cross. Don't leave that out. You see, fear rules the heart. Left alone, it will run your life. And that's why Peter gives us a fourth principle here. Not only not fearing and confronting the fear of man, but he also gives us a fourth principle to overcome the fear of man evangelism. Look at verse 15. He says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. How do I alleviate fear and evangelism? Well, first of all, I need to prove zealous, laying the foundation for good works. Secondly, I must count it a privilege and consider it a privilege to suffer if I'm mocked or persecuted. Thirdly, I must confront the fear of man. And then this last one, you must commit yourself to Christ's cause. You must commit yourself to Christ's cause. Peter gives a contrast here in verse 14. He says, fear not man, but fear God. People say, no, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say fear God. Oh, it doesn't. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. How do we fear God? By sanctifying or setting Christ up as Lord, as Master, as God Himself. Don't keep your eyes on the society, he says. Keep your eyes on God. Keep your eyes on His cause. Don't fear their intimidation. Understand and know what God's called you to You see, this word sanctify means to set apart or to separate. It's a term of worship. We have to understand that. Fear is an issue of worship. And when he says here sanctify, he means set up Christ or or set Him apart. Again, it's a term of worship. And as a matter of fact, in Matthew 6, Jesus used this word in the Lord's Prayer. You know what He said? Here's what He said. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name, or sanctified be Thy name. Or, or may your name be set apart out of all other names. May your name be dwelt on high and exalted on high. Or may, you ha- may your name be sanctified or separated from all other names. And here it is. In the sense of worship. Out of everything that I worship, I am to set you apart as my true essence of worship. It's saying out of all other loves... Out of all of the things that rule my heart, I separate Christ as my true Lord, as my true Master. He's in charge. What He wants, I must do. I fear Him and not man. You see, the issue is when you look away from Christ to what man thinks of you, you will fear man. Taking your eyes off Christ and His cause, you'll put them on man and His cause and you'll begin to fear man's retaliation. But if you're consistently keeping your eyes focused on Christ's lordship over your life, you won't fear man. You see, fear is an issue of the heart. It's an absolute issue of the heart. What we fear is what we worship. Take this whole thing out of the context of even evangelism. 
even in your own Christian life, even in your own relationship with your friends. What you fear is what you worship. Ladies, do you fear being not as pretty as some girls on campus and the guys won't won't like you? You're worshiping your own beauty. Men, are you worshiping your own reputation? Man, if I'm not cool and I don't have the right clothes, if my hair is not the right way, if I don't have the right car, what are people going to think of me? What you worship or what you fear is what you worship. Take it out of the whole context of that. Again, the issue here is what are you worshiping? If it's man, then you will fear man. If it's Christ, then you will be bold and you'll live a vibrant life. And Peter says, set up Christ as Lord in your hearts. In other words, fear Him. Trust in Him. Let me give you quickly in this verse five principles, and I'll just name them out, of how we can sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. And we'll close with these five principles. How can we sanctify Christ as Lord? Well, first of all, that word Lord there, Lord means Master, means Lord. First of all, how do we set up Christ? Devotion to His will. Devotion to His will. Jesus said in Matthew 28 19, Go, make disciples. All authority has been given to me upon heaven and upon earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all. Being devoted to His plan. That's what it means to sanctify Christ as Lord. Secondly, trust in His protection. What did He say in the very end of chapter 28 of Matthew? He said, Lo, I am with you always. When you are going to your churches, when you are going to your places of ministry, understand and know that Jesus said, I am going with you. Are you trusting His protection? Setting up, sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart means that you are trusting in His protection. Thirdly, we'll get into the text. He says, Being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you. How do we sanctify Christ as Lord? Are you ready to share the gospel? Being ready. Do you understand and know the, con- the, 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 the concepts of the gospel? Do you have an opportunity to share those? A couple months ago, I was at a wedding. It was unbelievers, it was just friends of the family. And a lady came up to me, we were just talking, they were friends of the family. And she knew that I left the Catholic Church. And she, I mean, she was just head over heels about the Catholic Church and in it. And she came up to me and she said, uh, I want to know something. And I'm just thinking, oh, you know, she's small talk. Why did you leave the Catholic Church? And I was absolutely floored and dumped out. I, I didn't know what to say to her. And my wife's looking up to me and saying, Rick, you're a pastor, man. You ought to be telling this lady what... What it's all about. And she asked me to make a defense of it. And I said, I wasn't ready. You see, I didn't go to that wedding with the, with the mindset of, hey, I might have an opportunity to share the gospel tonight. I need to be ready. And finally, I started getting the words out. And I slow, you know, and then we were talking a little bit more. And she was kind of offended at different things. But it was a great opportunity. She asked me. And that's what it says here. Always being ready. We sanctify Christ. That at any moment of the day, we are ready to share the gospel. How else do we sanctify Christ as Lord in our heart? It says to everyone who asks, asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. By giving hope. By giving hope to people. How many people do you know that just go up to people and say, Hey, you know you're going to hell and you need to repent and turn to God? That's not giving hope. That's giving the Word and that's right and that is true. But then turning that whole thing around there and saying, hey, I know you're living in sin. And I know you're, you're absolutely completely committed to your sin. But there's hope. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus can forgive you if you place your faith in Him and His work on the cross. Giving hope to people. 
And I was sharing the gospel a couple weeks ago with a guy, or a couple months, about a month, month and a half ago with a guy. He was just despondent and distressed completely in his life. And I was sharing the gospel with him, and he kind of left. He was like, wow, you know, I need to do some of these things in my life. And I get a phone call from him. A week later, he man, things are going good. This is the best time of my life. And then I hear later on that he tried to commit suicide. And I'm like, man, he needed hope. You guys, people need hope in this world. People need hope. And if you don't give it to them, if I don't give it to them, they're not going to find it anywhere else. They'll find, they'll try to find it in sex. They'll try to find it in drinking. They'll try to find it in whatever else, in crime or whatever else in their life. They'll try to find hope. People want hope, you guys. Are you broken over the loss? Wanting and desiring to give them hope. You know why? Because if you don't give hope, no one else will. No one else has hope, you guys. Nobody else has hope in this world. People are dying and going to hell daily. My dad is dying and going to hell. I have hope that he needs. And i got to be compassionate towards that and towards him to share that with him. And you all know people. I mean, it'd be like a doctor who has a cure for cancer or for a cure for AIDS and says, no, I'm not going to give it. Because we have hope. The only hope that this world could ever find, and that's in the person of Jesus Christ, in the message of the gospel. How can we fear? How can we fear being persecuted? How can we fear our society? We have the only hope. Last one, so we can close. It says, yet with gentleness and reverence. In other words, with patience, you're going to get ridiculed. You're going to get mocked, even sharing the gospel. I don't believe that. You believe that stuff? I don't believe that stuff. Be patient when you're sharing with people. Peter says here, give an account give of, of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Do you love people enough to tell them that they're going to hell? But do you love people enough to tell them that there's a way to heaven? And that's through the person of Jesus Christ. So the last principle. Set up Christ as Lord in your hearts. The fear of man is alleviated when a person is totally consumed with Christ. Totally satisfied with Him and His cause. See, that's what it means to say, I'm so consumed with Christ. I just want to see people know Him like I know Him. Amen? Hey, as you guys go out on your missions conference, remember who you are. You're God's chosen people. There is no other chosen race to represent God. And then secondly, fear not man, but fear God. Good little chalk talk before the game as you guys have an opportunity to share the gospel. Have a blast. Have fun. Tell people about the Lord. You know, I mean, I think the ministry, is, I think evangelism is so exciting. It's not hard at all. But we do fear, and I fear myself as well. But if we put these principles into practice, that if we just, you know, shower people with good deeds of kindness and joy... If we count it a privilege to suffer, if we confront the fear of man and don't allow it to grab a hold of our heart, and if we keep in our mind and our focus in our direction a compassionate, all-consuming passion for the Lord Jesus Christ and His cause, that will alleviate fear. Why don't you stand as we end our morning?